Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. Twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am joined today by a gang of our favorites. They include an old favorite who hasn't been here for a while because she was busy running for Congress for a while and former Defense Department official, uh, specialist in Ukraine and Russia for the Obama administration, Evelyn Farkas. Hi, Evelyn. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me back. We're so glad to have you back, and it's so timely to have you. Also joining us, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you today, Rosa? I'm hanging in there, David. And no doubt, way, way better than just hanging in there. Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am doing exceedingly well, David. Exceedingly I'm still moistured well. out in California. It's uh-huh. yeah, well, that'll do it for, for everybody. And also always at the pinnacle of spirits, we have with us Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. How are you? Not bad at all. Thank you. Not bad. See, that's British for woo. So change the mood a little bit. The president of the United States, today's Monday when we're recording this, scheduled tomorrow to speak to his counterpart in Russia, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, Evelyn, is up to no good again. And he's got a giant army sitting on the border of Ukraine. And there are all sorts of stories of intelligence reports saying that come the new year, he's going to use that army in Ukraine. And of course, President of the United States doesn't have a lot of great options here because launching World War III is a bad option and uh, letting Putin do whatever he wants in Ukraine, bad option. Evelyn and then everybody, what's President Biden supposed to say to 
President Putin that might possibly have any impact? Well, first of all, <laughs> I'd like to edit your comment about Vladimir Putin is up to no good again because he's actually up to no good always. And what he's doing now has everything to do with his domestic situation. So he's very concerned about what happened in Ukraine, what continues to be in Ukraine, a march towards more democracy and a better economic system. Although, of course, it's being completed or being being achieved in fits and starts. He's also seen an uprising in Belarus against the strongman Lukashenko there. And he's worked with Lukashenko to try to create a destabilizing situation for the European Union on the Polish border. But ultimately, Putin does not want, and, and internally, he's been, of course, under pressure from Alexei Navalny and the Russian people who view him increasingly with less favor. So he really wants the Ukrainian experiment with democracy to fail. He wants Ukraine and all of the countries in the former Soviet states to come under Russian influence again. He wrote a huge, long, revanchist paper that he put out. The last time we heard a huge, long, revanchist rant from Vladimir Putin around the world was when he seized Crimea. So I'm a bit worried that right now he's doing this for domestic reasons and he may not back down. I've given you a long preamble and many people will have other things to say about this. But the key thing we have to do is to, to deter him, to make it very clear up front what the cost will be. If Vladimir Putin takes further aggressive military action against Ukraine or any other country for that matter. So it's the game, the name of the game is deterrence. I don't think there's much of a deal that can be had with Russia. And, and again, we can talk about that later. But the, the president needs to be very clear about consequences consequences in his conversation. And I would add probably publicly when he comes out of that meeting as well. So, Rosa. How does this work with your kids? Like, how do you get people to stop? To, like, I would always go, I'm going to count to three. And the whole secret was that you never get to three and the kid stops because there was really nothing you could do after three. And, and I'm afraid that in some respects, this is what the situation Biden is in. Yeah, I've often thought that a lot about foreign policy and diplomacy, you know, could be, you know, titled a book called everything I know about foreign policy I learned in kindergarten, which, I mean, on the one hand, right, we're, we're trying to essentially raise the costs to Putin of following through on possible plans for an actual invasion of Ukraine. And we are all hoping that he is sensible enough that although he will continue to do a lot of chest thumping and you can't stop me. I can do whatever I want that he doesn't really, really mean it when push comes to shove. But we don't know, as in kindergarten, every now and then people just have irrational temper tantrums and do things that are totally self-destructive and crazy. I still believe that he's not that crazy, but I could be wrong. And yeah, we're, we're as Evelyn said, I mean, we're in a really difficult situation. We don't we don't have a whole lot. He's probably maybe probably sort of maybe probably bluffing. But he also knows that we're at the stage where the more substantial consequences that President Biden is going to threaten is also probably sort of kind of probably bluffing because we don't have a whole lot left. Corey, as this goes and you think of the kind of things that President Biden can do, and there don't seem to be that many except for threats of economic sanctions and so on, you might conclude that this is, looks to Putin like a win win. He can distract from his domestic situation. 
he can go in possibly with a lot of troops and limited goals and achieve some of those goals and look good. And he can um, make Biden look bad because, the you know, almost anything Biden does is not going to be enough. Right. So maybe he's not behaving irrationally. Maybe doing all of this is very rational. So I agree with your judgment, David, that Putin and I think also Xi Jinping have concluded that America is so solipsistic, dysfunctional, unconcerned about preserving an international order that has made us and others safe and prosperous, that now is a good time to stick the knife in and twist it and try and collapse an order that the United States is paramount in the organization and benefits of. Um, Leon Aaron, the Russia scholar on my AEI team, thinks that we make a mistake when we think foreign policy is the central or sole motivation of Vladimir Putin's foreign policy moves. And as you suggested, David, there's a strong domestic politics motivation, which is the Russian economy continues not to deliver the demographics and other domestic Russian issues also don't bode well for Russia being a competitive state. And we're writing them out of the great power competition because we're concerned about China. But I think from Leon's perspective, most importantly, Putin's actions are aiming at cementing the 2024 permanent presidency for himself. And we ought to look at his foreign policy moves in that regard. And I agree with your judgment that we shouldn't just have or even principally have economic concerns or economic tools at our disposal, precisely because sanctions, unless they are targeted on the people doing the bad stuff, help Putin by further isolating Russia from global connectedness, global consequences. I personally, as you know, favor using the tools of free societies, in particular, transparency, accountability, and the rule of law. That's hard to do in an authoritarian society. But it looks to me like the release of the Panama Papers sure got Vladimir Putin's attention. And so one of the threats I hope President Biden will issue to Vladimir Putin when they talk is we will make your personal and your family finances public and you will have to explain to Russians uh, how you amass this great fortune in their time of troubles. I think finding ways to have cost imposing strategies is difficult on authoritarians, just as it's difficult on terrorists. But figuring out what they value is the key to what to hold at risk. Yeah, and all those pictures from his weekends in the Black Sea, all the party pictures would probably be real exciting. Ed, you know, we, uh, Corey said we're too solipsistic, but you and I both know that we spend too much time thinking of ourselves really to have any time for solipsism. Yeah, (laughs) Biden got the crap kicked out of him for Afghanistan. If Vladimir Putin sort of ignores him and carries this to the next step, 
Was there anything Biden can do not to look weak and get the crap kicked out of him some more? It's very difficult. Your rule of parenting is you count to three and you don't want to get to three. So my fallback is to say, okay, now I'm going to count to five. And that doesn't seem to be any more effective than counting to three. And a good I'm, variation, though. I've got, got to remember that. Three and yeah. a half, three and three quarters. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Three and five, six. <laughs> you can keep going for a long time. Then there's seven eighths, and there's 15 sixteenths, 31, 30 seconds. I mean, you can go on infinitely before you get to, to three. But I prefer to fall back on five. It's just a simpler number. And, you know, you get exposed quicker. But other than the third world war option um, that you, you lined out, most of the alternatives are, you know, about counting to higher numbers. So I would very strongly go with what Corey mentioned about corruption and Pandora Papers and Panama Papers and the, the various other shoes, financial shoes that could drop if we give it an assist. With the one sort of wrinkle is that I wouldn't warn Putin of this tomorrow as if it's a condition of not uh, misbehaving in eastern Ukraine. I would go ahead and do it anyway. And I would go ahead and try and get a stronger pledge from the Democracy Summit, the participants later this week in the Democracy Summit, to tackling the ill-gotten proceeds of kleptocracy and shining transparency on the, the financial system. I would try and get a stronger pledge as possible. And with or without a strong pledge, go ahead unilaterally and do a lot more as the American administration to, to bring this about. Um, I think corruption is always the undoing of autocracies. It's very, very rarely more abstract principles than it is just corruption, the sense that you are being ripped off and robbed blind and treated for fools. And I think Russia, quite rightly, uh, is a ripe example of that, and that Putin, quite rightly, is very worried about that. And none of which is really an answer to your question as to how to stop Russian adventurism this winter in Ukraine. And I don't have a good answer to that. But I, I kind of like the subtext here, which is meddling in Russian elections. You know, in other words, putting out all this stuff and playing a role of fanning the flames of Putin's unpopularity at home. Evelyn, one of the things that we have not mentioned here is that the people of Ukraine have a say in all this. And they don't like the Russians coming across their border. And they've got the ability, particularly over the short term, to make it very costly and unpleasant for the Russians to come across the border. What do you think of their prospects and what do you think we can do to help their prospects? Just to jump off a little bit from the earlier question that you asked, Ed, what can we do? I would agree with Ed and Corey that we can do a lot right now to make things more uncomfortable for Putin domestically. But there's a lot we can do to deter him. And part of it, it includes economic sanctions. You know, there's a huge space between the sanctions we have on Russia today and the sanctions on Iran. There's a lot of play space there. So we can tell the Russians up front right now that if they take one more step into Ukrainian territory, we will remove them from the SWIFT banking system. We can, we can tell them ahead of time that if they move one more step into Ukraine, we will not allow our bankers, our investors to finance any past loans of the Russian government, which is, not, which is distinct from what is banned right now, providing loans for sovereign debt, Russian sovereign debt into the future. 
So there are many more things we can do economically to make it hurt for the Russians. And that's what you want to do. You want them to know ahead of time that if they conduct an invasion, it's going to hurt. So what can the Ukrainians do? They can make it hurt in terms of blood and lives. We've given them the Javelin anti-tank system. If the Russians come over the border, Ukrainians can use that system. They purchased drones from a Turkish company. There's another shipment of those coming. If they use those drones, that will also help them with targeting. These are all defensive measures, but they will result in Russians going home in body bags. So we can continue to provide that kind of assistance. We also should, I believe, be mindful of the other domains. So not just land, but air and maritime. We have not been as helpful to the Ukrainians in those areas. And that's something that we and the NATO allies can do together. And obviously, it's really important that we do these things lockstep with our NATO allies, but really with all of our allies around the world, because nobody wants to see this precedent being normalized, meaning the precedent of invading neighboring countries and seizing their territory. And the international community just kind of stands by, not entirely helpless and not entirely just wringing their hands, but nevertheless, not deterring further actions of this nature. Rosa, were you in the U.S. government the last time that uh, Putin went into Crimea? No, I don't don't think so. It was 2014. Yeah, I was out already. Okay, you were out. You may recall that, you know, when the United States was weighing its options, there was a vigorous debate as to whether we should send the Ukrainians blankets or MREs. Oh, God. Yes, I remember that. You know, it was we're we're really we couldn't decide. Wait a minute. Okay, I have to pause here because I hate that mockery because they didn't have blankets and they were deployed out to the front. They had nothing. But this is a brilliant strategy for my daughter. If you don't stop after I count to three, I'm going to make you eat an MRE. That would be absolutely devastating. (laughs) (laughs) Glad we're helping you with the parenting lessons. Your disaster. I, I sent them my husband. My poor husband, uh, who's retired Army Special Forces, went off to Ukraine recently to supposedly train the Ukrainians in resistance to the Russians. But I'm pretty sure, judging from what he said when he came back, that training Ukrainian special forces consisted almost entirely of going to pubs and getting very, very drunk. I'm not sure that's actually helping them, however. <laughs> well, but it's a, then your family is willing to make that sacrifice this kind of Beautiful. And frankly, that somebody who was <laughs> I got able, plastered for Ukraine. Yeah. But also somebody who's able to deal with you on a daily basis, <laughs> you know, also could, you know, be, be well trained to help them with the Russians. But, you know, it seems to me that the United States could do more. We could compound some of the, the things that we've done that Evelyn just enumerated. We could make it clearer that we will supply and help Ukraine defend itself in a clearer way than than we have done. So far, Tony Blinken, when he's been in Europe talking about this, you know, has been using essentially the I'm going to count to three formula, which is really bad things will happen. Don't test us. But might it not help if we said, look, there'll be more anti-tank systems. There'll be more of this. There'll be more of that. We'll supply them. Yeah, it might. You know, I'm not a Russia expert, so I defer to Evelyn uh, on trying to understand Putin's psyche and trying to have a clear understanding of what are the kinds of actions that for Putin 
would simply make him dig in even further and be provocative versus the things that would make him say, uh, you know, I really want to, I really want to piss them off and scare everybody, but I'm not going to go that far. But it logically as an outsider, as a, as a layperson vis-a-vis Kremlinology, it makes sense to me that that's one of the few things that we can do that actually starts upping the ante above and beyond what we've already been doing. Um, so, Corey, I mentioned earlier that there have been a number of reports of intelligence reports that suggest that the Russians intend to do this, that this is not posturing, that they will take action. How worried are you that they actually will take action? Very. Eight on a scale of 10 worried. Because moving 175,000 soldiers to the Ukrainian border is a lot of time, effort, and money. And I don't think Putin would do it for nothing. And I think there are lots of ways short of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine that Putin can achieve valuable geopolitical outcomes, including the humiliation of the United States, calling into question NATO's viability on the basis of its ability to reach consensus about threats, even to non-member states, to create a failed state in Ukraine, which Bruno Macias, for example, suggests is Putin's ultimate goal. There are lots of ways in which Russia can gain from this if we don't take a strong stand, hold hands with our allies, share information. I was thrilled to see that the Biden administration is doing a lot of intelligence sharing to help European allies to see the nature of the threat that the United States government believes it's seeing. And I absolutely agree with Evelyn that making clear what bad outcomes will also accrue to Russia if it makes choices, trying to split the alliance, all those kinds of things. It's not just the invasion of Ukraine that we ought to be trying to deter Russian behavior about. I think that was a really important point Evelyn made. Yeah, I do too. You know, listening to you, by the way, I I can't help but think it probably would have been bad that the last president of the United States followed through with withholding aid to Ukraine and trying to undermine that government unless it helped him politically. Well, David, you have finally cracked my otherwise broad support for Donald Trump's presidency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was just thinking, though, that, you know, when we start listening to Ted Cruz talking about how weak Joe Biden is on Ukraine, it's going to be really hard to stomach. Ed, we've talked a lot about the Europeans. Uh, of course, we've got new government coming into Germany. We Is there still a government in the UK? I'm not sure what you've got going over in the UK. You've got some parts of NATO dealing with their own uh, internal problems. This really seems like it's a twofer for Putin or a threefer because he's got the ability to go and uh, achieve goals in Ukraine. He's got the ability to, to humiliate the U.S. But it looks like NATO is also going to sort of be in disarray, too, for all of this. What do you expect of the Europeans on this? Or do you think they're really just going to hide behind America's skirts? 
you know, I don't think the Europeans want Putin to invade eastern Ukraine or whatever his plans might be any more than we do. And it's much closer and more real to Europeans than, than it is to us in most respects. But I think for precisely that reason, the ambivalence is stronger. The cost of sort of alienating Putin with a cold winter coming and COVID restrictions coming back in and gas prices being high or having recently been very high, you know, are always going to be weighing into the, the calculation. The most interesting development is the, the new German government. And the most sort of interesting development within that is the fact that the Green Party has the foreign ministry, Annalena Baerbock, who's a fairly hawkish figure, not just on China, but also on Russia, a persistent and very effective critic of the SPD's history of, you know, cozying up, well, both the SPD and the CDU's history of cozying up to Russia and of, you know, getting seats on the board of Gazprom after they leave power. That's, that's on many levels something that deeply offends the Greens. And so we do have a potential, ironically, given that, you know, that's not how we think of Greens, a, a more values-based muscular approach to foreign policy, which is probably something that somebody like Macron is looking quite hopefully to as well. I wouldn't overestimate how domestic sort of rocky horror show that is British politics doesn't affect foreign policy. I think foreign policy, weirdly, on questions like this and on questions like Iran, and it just sort of continues anyway. So I think there's probably more NATO, there's probably more NATO unity on doing something about it. The question is what that something would be. And if I could just very quickly slip in my own personal bias here, which might not be popular. I think the long-term goal here, in addition to stopping whatever uh, Putin's worst is in the short term, the long-term goal, the ideal one is having Ukraine as a buffer state, a neutral buffer state, like Finland was, like Austria was during the Cold War, both very free, very vibrant democracies, very prosperous ones, is to remove a source of potential friction. And I suspect that would be a worse outcome from, for Russia than for us. And so we should be aiming in that direction long term. Okay, well, that's a really interesting point. I'd like to come back to that. Uh, of course, this is the end of the uh, time for our, our regular broadcast. For those of you who are non-paying listeners, uh, for those of you who are members, you get another 10 or 15 minutes of bonus content, which is going to continue in just one moment. For the others, thanks very much. And we'll be back with you again with other exciting subjects later in the week.